0: Good morning, everyone. Greetings in the name of Christ. It's really good to be with you. It's been just fantastic for me to be here again this year, and I hope it has been for you as well. I'd like to tell you this, a little bit this morning about a man. Uh, I, only, I only know his first name. <clears throat> his, his first name is Charles, and Charles lives in Romania, but he, didn't, he, didn't, he wasn't born in Romania. He was born in Libya. And when he was uh, when he was a very young boy, he realized something was different about their family. And and his father was a pastor, a Christian pastor, in Libya in a Muslim area in Libya. And his and because of this, because he was a, a a pastor, a Christian pastor, he they received a lot of persecution. And one of the things that that you should know about much of Africa is it's a very spiritually dark place, and I'm sure you already knew that. But it's a very spiritually dark place, and it's a place that's given over really to Satan in a lot of ways. And because of that, there are spiritual battles that manifest themselves in, in places like that that maybe we don't folk, maybe we don't see as much here. But Charles's dad was unafraid to go out and minister in those areas, and and there were there were times when there were many spiritual battles fought and he would pray for these people and help them. Well, they got more and more pressure, and eventually, the entire family was arrested. The soldiers came one day to their house and captured the entire family. And I don't know what the trumped up charges were, but essentially it was that they, that they were Christians, and, and because of this, they must pay. And Charles and his father witnessed as, as Charles' brother and his mother were beaten to death in front of them. After that, they took the dad and Charles and threw them into prison. And by this time, Charles was about 20 years old. <clears throat> and they were not there very long, but every day they would beat, they would beat them just mercilessly. And... I saw Charles' legs, and they are so rimmed with scars that, that they're, they're, there's like white circlets all around his legs, and his back, they would beat it so much that his back is, is just covered in scars. One morning, they took his dad out and shot him. The next morning, they were going to do the same to Charles. They told him this. But there was something about uh, one of the guards that Charles recognized. And he recognized in him uh, that, that he was the brother of a, man, of a boy that his father had once helped spiritually. A boy who was possessed. And his, and his father had prayed for this boy and he had helped this boy out, this family out. And Charles looked at him, and he told this man, he said, you can do with me what you want, but he said, God will judge you for this. You know what's right and what's not. And that night, the soldier, that guard, went into the prison, opened the door, and said, come with me. And he grabbed Charles. They went out, hopped in a jeep, and this, the, the prison was way out in the desert, And they took off across the Libyan desert and drove for hours and hours, I think he said it was about six hours, across the Libyan desert all the way to to, uh, Tripoli. And there, the guard bribed a ship captain and got Charles onto a container ship. And they didn't know where the ship was going, they didn't know anything about the ship except that it was a ship in port getting ready to leave. And Charles was a stowaway on that ship and it turns out it was a Romanian ship and it ended up on the Black Sea. And when, um, when they got to Romania, Charles was able to sneak off the ship but he ended up in a country um, full of white people uh, in which nobody spoke, any, uh, spoke his language. And he, um, he survived sort of on begging and getting around. One day he, he ended up in a town close to us called Timisoara and in this town, one of my friends saw him. My friend Donny saw Charles begging on a street corner. And this was a quite a sight because in Romania you're not used to seeing uh, Libyans. And so Donnie went over there and tried to figure out um, who, his, who this man was. Well, he, he had a really hard time because he didn't know Romanian. He only knew a few words. Well, Donnie took him home. And Started a, a, a relationship with him, and eventually, gradually, as, as Charles began to be able to speak Romanian, uh, the story came out. Now, none of us have gone through what Charles has gone through, but wouldn't you say, it would be fair to say that Charles had enough suffering to last a lifetime? What kind of story do you think Charles could tell about his life? Don't you think it was time for somebody to take care of Charles? Well, I'll tell you the story that Charles told about his life. It wasn't a story of victimhood, of a a, a man who was orphaned at the hands of, of evil men. The story that Charles tells about his life is a story of the victory that God gave him. You see, Charles wasn't done with God just like God wasn't done with Charles. And today, Charles is an evangelist in Romania and he's a missionary in Africa. And God has used the things that he faced to make him powerful for him. Lots of stories I could tell you about Charles, but I won't. But the stories we tell about ourselves are profoundly shaping. We've got lots of stories in the Bible. We've got the story of Joseph, for example. How would you tell the story of Joseph? We could tell this story different ways. You could could say it's a story about a father's favoritism and how it damages sibling relationships. Or you could say it's a story of undeserved hatred. A story of a man who's sold into slavery and by his, he, by his own strength, by his own intelligence, and by his own character, he pulls himself up by his own bootstraps. Is that the way we would tell the story of Joseph? What's the lesson of Joseph's life? A man who comes out on top no matter the hard things that are thrown at him? That's not what Joseph says about himself. Genesis 41, he says this, when he's, when he's finally brought before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, I've dreamed a dream. Can you tell me what the dream is? I've heard you can interpret dreams. And Joseph is there and he's thinking, oh, can, here's, my, here's my chance. Here's my get out of jail free card. And Joseph said, it's not me. I can't do it. But he says, God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. See, Joseph always brought it back to God. And then later when Joseph met his brothers and, and they had this reunion and they were apologized. you can imagine how they felt and how, how uh, you know, terrified they were. He says this, God sent me before you to preserve your posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. See, the way Joseph saw it, God was in control of his story. Just like Charles says, God was in control of my story. How do you tell your story? Are you a hero in your story? Or is your story defined by a villain somewhere? Somebody, a King Saul to your David, who's just out to get you? Are you a victim in your story? A helpless A helpless uh, piece of flotsam on the sea of life, or you may be just an observer. You sort of stand back, and life is sort of passing you by, and you wonder what it's all about. See, none of it matters. None of it makes any sense until God is part of your story. So, uh, when I, I, if I would ask you who you are, essentially, we would all, to some degree, have have an identity. We say, "Well, I'm this kind of person." But the funny thing is about us is that we've got selective memory. We remember the things about ourselves that we like. Or maybe if we're a person who's struggling with, um, with self-identity issues, maybe we might remember something about ourselves that we don't like. But what do you remember about yourself? Remember King Saul, who he thought he was? He shows up after this battle, and, and Samuel says, uh, What's going on? And Saul says, Yes, I'm, I've done everything that you told me to do. Uh, God should be very thankful for me. And you should be very thankful for the great victory I've won. And Samuel says, what do you mean? What's this mooing I hear? The distance. Because sometimes we have selective memory. But then we've got these heroes of faith. And we say, well, they should be perfect, right? Their stories are perfect. But if you read the scripture carefully, you'll never get the idea that the work of Christ is is for well-adjusted people who pretty much have their act together, they just need a little redemptive tweak, a little bit of Jesus to to round things off and make things perfect. The Bible never presents any human condition or dilemma as outside the scope of the gospel. And redemption is nothing less than the rescue of helpless people facing an eternity of torment apart from God's love. That's what redemption is. It's not just saving you from something bad, but it's saving you to something wonderful. Think about Elijah. Elijah is the prophet of fire. Uh, My second son's middle name is Elijah. I hope for him that one day he will be a man of fire. He's one of my heroes. And yet, after that great uh, victory that he won on on the top of, the, of Mount Carmel, you find him the next day groveling in victimhood, and groveling in depression. And he eventually ends up in this cave, and God's coming and talking to him, and, he, and God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And This is what Elijah says about himself. This is Elijah's story about what happened. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with a sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. See, that's what Elijah had convinced himself the story was. And it wasn't until God said, okay, Elijah, how about this? How about this perspective that things changed for him? It's a quote I like. If we grasp in our hearts the goodness Grace and glory of God, we live with joy and hope. That's way we want to live, isn't it? For whose glory are you living? See, conflict arises when God's people stray away from his purposes, from his ways, from his wisdom, from his fear. There's the story of Jonah, one of the most successful evangelists that ever lived. And after the whole debacle with the big fish and all that, He eventually ends up at Nineveh and he preaches this message that God has given him. And and, um, what happens? They repent in sackcloth and ashes and they fall on their faces before the Lord and they cry out and the Lord sees us and he says, thank God for Jonah and we're going to save these people. We're going to, we're going to let these people live. But what does Jonah do? He goes outside the city and he sits there and he looks at the city waiting for this fireworks moment, waiting for the atomic bomb to land, hoping against hope that it will, and it doesn't. And he says this to God. I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before thee unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, I... Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. See, Jonah had turned this story of amazing victory and amazing salvation into a pity party for himself. And I think the funny thing is that, or it's not funny at all, but the amazing thing is that people still do this with their life. They take the wonderful things that God works in other people's lives and maybe they turn this, it's, it's about them and about how maybe they feel left out and how that makes them feel foolish. God was glorified by Jonah's obedience. It was a wonderful story. People repented, lives were saved, but it was as Jonah strayed from the purposes of God and was no longer in harmony with what God really wanted for the Ninevites, that the story changed for him. He was more concerned about his own reputation than he was concerned about God's purpose or other people's lives. Do we worship God? Or do we worship ourselves? We must seek to see. So that we may change. Seek to see the truth. When we, when we seek to see the truth. Without the intention. Of ourselves being changed by that truth. We will have a frustrating. And a finally self-defeating. Life. Truth leads to more truth only as we respond to each new revelation. And that's the story of victory. Are we willing to take an honest look at ourselves in light of the word of God? If you're feeling discouraged and you feel like your story is is going poorly, maybe God's forsaken you or your friends are forsaking you, what are those present sources of frustration, of discontent, of anger or difficulty in your life? Think of these as an opportunity which God is presenting you. How will you respond to this opportunity? Will it be with self-justified anger, like Jonah, pride, belief, contempt? Or will it be with grace, mercy, love, humility? The stories of the heroes of faith aren't so much stories about extraordinary people as they are stories of an extraordinary God working in the lives of ordinary people. The Bible says Elijah was just ordinary man. This prophet of fire was cut from the same cloth as you. Abraham lied to Pharaoh. Jacob cheated his brother and deceived his father. Moses ran ahead of God, killed an Egyptian taskmaster, and had to flee ignominiously for his life. Noah got drunk. David committed adultery. Jeremiah gave up. Peter denied Christ. Thomas doubted. Paul hurt. He hurt the the people of God. Sarah laughed at God's promise. Jonah ran away. And when God and mercy brought him back, he whined and complained when God showed mercy to the ones that he had been speaking to. The disciples wrangled in power struggles. See, These people are just like us, aren't they? And yet God used them. Their humanity shows plainly. They weren't superheroes. Their stories aren't faultless. The Bible speaks clearly and honestly about their failures. And yet when each of these people allowed God to direct them, their stories are anything but ordinary. God takes ordinary people who are willing to follow him, changes them, and impacts the world for his glory through them. I don't know about you, but that's, that's the way I want my story to be written. So how do we get that? Well, what, how, how don't we get it, maybe? Maybe. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12 says, For we dare not make ourselves of the number, or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. But we will not boast of things without our measure, but according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed to us, a measure to reach even to you. There's not one of us who is worth a snap of the fingers to God and to his kingdom unless God is directing our lives. I've got some smart people here. I've got some strong people here. I've got some people here that are in a good place to make a difference. And yet, unless God is directing us, whatever good we think we are doing, we're probably not doing it. Because it's only when God enters our story that real change, good change, can really happen. When we begin to think we are something, we begin to worship ourselves instead of worshiping God. When we lose our love for the Word of God and our simple, everyday trust in its truth as applied to our lives, we become nothing more than second-rate philosophers and theorists. When our own desires and our own opinions matter more to us than what God says about our relationships, about our worship, about our money, about our sanctification, about our, the way we handle ourselves in church, Without our sources of wisdom, about our sources of wisdom. We're on our own. And our own isn't worth a hill of beans. Proverbs 12, 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he that hearkeneth unto counsel is wise. And then there's our victories, right? The things that we point back to and we say, yeah, well, that's, that, was, that was something good. Sometimes we even get those wrong. I'd like to read you a poem called The Battle of Blenheim. "'Twas a summer evening. Old Casper's work was done, and he, before his cottage door, was sitting in the sun, and by him, sported on the green, his little grandchild, Wilhelmine. She saw her brother Peterkin roll something large and round, which he, beside the rivulet and playing there, had found." He came to ask what he had found that was so large and smooth and round. Old Casper took it from the boy, who stood expectant by. And then the old man shook his head, and with a natural sigh, "'Tis some poor fellow's skull,' he said, who fell on the great victory. I find them in the garden, for there's many hereabout, and often when I go to plow, the plowshare turns them out. For many thousand men, said he, were slain in that great victory." Now tell us what t'was all about, young Peter Kinney cries, and little Wilhelmine looks up with wonder-waiting eyes. Now tell us all about the war and what they fought each other for. It was the English, Casper cried, who put the French to rout, but what they fought each other for I could not well make out. But everybody said, quoth he, that t'was a famous victory. My father lived at Blenheim then, yon little stream hard by, they burnt his dwelling to the ground, and he was forced to fly. So with his wife and child he fled, nor had he where to rest his head. With fire and sword the country round was wasted far and wide, and many a childling mother then and newborn baby died. But things like that you know must be at every famous victory. They said it was a shocking sight after the field was won, for many thousand bodies here lay rotting in the sun, but things like that you know must be after a famous victory. Great praise the Duke of Marlborough won, and our good Prince Eugene. Why, 'twas a very wicked thing,' said little Wilhelmine. Nay, nay, my little girl, quoth he, 'twas a famous victory.' And everybody praised the Duke who this great fight did win. But what good came of it at last, quoth little Peterkin. Why, that I cannot tell, said he, but 'twas a famous victory.' We've got the opportunity to join a lot of fights. And maybe sometimes we think we win victories. What do they mean? There's a man named Pyrrhus. Um, a, I believe he was a Roman. And he, he, quote, he um, was a commander. And from him comes this term Pyrrhic victory. Does anybody know what a Pyrrhic victory is? It was after they had won a a battle, and he said this. No, he was a Greek. He said, one more victory like that over the Romans will destroy us completely. When we step away from our pride and our puny abilities and instead recognize our own weaknesses and helplessness, God gives us his strength. Humility opens the door to effectiveness. Effectiveness. Once we understand that we are our own worst enemies, the battle with self is one that will never go away. That every time we choose God's way over our way, gentleness over anger, love over hate, honesty over hiding, caring over callousness, courage over despair, God is able to have more access in our lives. And the unfortunate truth is that when we, as Christians, or people who call ourselves such, insert our selfish motives, Into our interactions with others, we sully the name of God, bring trouble on ourselves, put a stumbling block before others. Think of people like Gehazi, the servant of Elisha. Think of people like Judas Iscariot. Think of people like Ananias and Sapphira. People like King Saul. But when we do things God's way, for his glory, out of loving obedience to him, others will be blessed. God will be glorified, his kingdom built, and we'll receive a blessing. I'd like to look, if you'd, if you'd like to turn with me just briefly over to Luke 24. One of my favorite stories in the Bible. Luke 24, 13. The story of two disciples on the road to Emmaus, walking in the dark, heavy on their hearts, was the crucifixion and the loss of all that they thought to be true. They're feeling completely at sea. They believed Jesus to be the Messiah, and now he's dead. And as they're walking along in verse 13 here, they're talking about all these things, and they hear a patter of footsteps behind them. Somebody walking just a little faster than they. Probably they are walking slow, they don't have a whole lot of energy. They're walking along, talking, sad, and this man walks up beside them, walking just a little faster. And he says, What are y'all talking about? And he said, and they said, well, what else could we be talking about? We're talking about what's happened over this last weekend. And he said, well, tell me about it. He said, they said, you don't already know? He said, why don't you tell me? And so they told him. They told him as best they could the story of Jesus and how he had been captured and given a false trial. A mock trial. How he had been unjustly killed. And I would challenge you, read down, anybody down who's looking at this story here in Luke 24. Down through verse 24. Tell me if they said anything wrong. If there is anything wrong with the facts of their story. Did they have any facts incorrect? They don't. The story is perfectly factual. And it's a story of defeat. It's a story of despair. It's a story of people running away. It's a story of the the victory of darkness over light. And then two words that, counterintuitively, are the beginning of a wonderful change. Oh, fools, Jesus says. And then he tells the story. It's the same story. But he's telling it now. And I can just see these three walking along. And these two two men are walking with their heads down. Their shoulders are slumped. Brother Harry would not approve of their posture. But as Jesus talks, they start to walk a little faster. They don't even recognize what they're doing. Their heads start coming up. They start looking at each other. They start nodding their heads. And all of a sudden, they're smiling. Because, see, this story is not a story of defeat, despair, and the conquering of darkness over light. This is a story of the winning of our souls, of the conquering of evil, of the Messiah, fighting the forces of evil at their very core, Of facing death and hell, those two things that give us ultimate clarity, facing them down and conquering over them. This is a story of ultimate victory, and it's the same story. After Jesus left them, they looked at each other, and they said, didn't our hearts burn? See, we can have all the facts right. I don't know what story you're telling about your life. You can have all the facts right and be telling the completely wrong story. And I would just invite you, if that's the kind of life that you think you have, to invite Jesus into that story and to tell him, please write my story. God wants to turn your story from a story of defeat into a story of victory. The difference is Christ in our lives and more than a passenger, more than a tweak, more than a touch. God's goal for his people is that we partner with him, that we move past ourselves into being commissioned warriors in his army, that we be his hands, his feet, his heart his voice, in a broken and hurting world, that we burn with a fire that does not go out, that not only lights the dark, not only shows the way, but also burns away the chaff from our own lives and around us as well. That we love the truth and we love God and we love each other in such a powerful way that we are abiding in Christ and he in us and that his name is glorified And he is lifted high, that we take on the identity he gives us, and that all else falls away. God wants to write your story for his glory. What will it be? And God bless each of you today.